Okay, good evening everyone. How is everyone? Yeah, okay, so this used to be a music hall. Um, oh, I thought that we were going to get that bit for free, but it doesn't. Um, okay, so let's, let's get some audience interaction. Um, if this were legitimate, then where Vivian is sitting now would be a, a sort of chairman with a bottle of red wine and a really salty baked potato. And if they didn't like what was going on on stage, they would a bottle of red wine uh, in my face. Um, so don't try that, but um, th th that's the kind of uh, example of the rowdiness um, that would once have happened in here. Okay, so we're going to talk about time travel, if I can get this to work. Uh, yeah, okay. So I've written a book uh, about time traveling through London, and uh, the first revelation to share with you, really, is that you don't actually need a time machine to travel in London. You just need to walk around a corner. Uh, or through an alleyway. Um, you, know, you don't need uh, any sort of tears in the space-time continuums, any uh, police call boxes or whatever else the kids use to hurtle through time these days because London is peppered with portals into another world. Uh, and you can go anywhere you like. So I thought we might start on the South Bank. Anyone been to Bear Gardens? Yeah, vaguely. Obviously, weren't very impressed because it was quite a sort of uh, tepid. Yes, um, but basically, if sorry, no offence, man. Um, it, it's kind of um, there's nowhere better to soak up the city uh, on a kind of fresh summer's night than the South Bank. You've got the city touring uh, across the water. Uh, you've got kind of lovers draped over benches, canoodling, and of course the resurrected uh, Globe Theatre on your right. Um, and as you walk towards Southwark Bridge, and you're dodging the kind of uh, choleric cyclists and the thickets of drunken men, um, you see this kind of inconspicuous alleyway squirreling off, um, leading away from the promenade, and that is Bear Gardens. And if you were to walk down Bear Gardens, um, you're transported back in time, and it's almost as though the endless warehouse-style blocks of the city have dissolved into green fields and bushy trees and ditches, and you're left with a uh, a kind of ribbon. Well, you're in Tudor London. You're in Shakespearean London. Uh, this is a map of it. And you're round about there. You see where the bear is with the uh, chain round his neck. Um, and uh, this is kind of like the scene that you're confronted with. So this is our first stop. We're going to go to visit uh, the site of what was the kind of oldest spectator sport uh, in the country. The year is 1603, and we're going to walk into a typical uh, later, early Jacobean bear baiting arena. So, you go in, and it will be the noise that hits you first, the bawling and the bellowing and the screaming and the shouting of all the frenzied spectators, and you'll begin to understand why Bear Gardens has entered the English language as an idiom for a place of righteous disorder. You would take your seat in the stools up there, and point at someone with the laser, and um, from that wobbly vantage point, you'd see standing in the middle of the stage, right where I am now, you'd see a magnificent bull who'd be pouring the sand and uh, scanning the arena. And uh, around the room where you're all sitting now, you'd see various men with mastiff dogs. Anyone got a mastiff dog? Nope, good. They're very vicious. They're renowned for the nobility, uh, savagery, and courage and strength. And uh, these men would be psyching up these dogs with various blood-baying inducements. And uh, in the center of it, I should mention, the bull would be tied to uh, a stake in the middle of the arena, uh, which would be sunk deep into the ground. And uh, the atmosphere would be very tense. And then all of a sudden, the men would release three of the dogs, and they'd dive towards the bull. The crowd would go wild. They'd scream, now dog, now bull. Um, and uh, what you'd see would be the, the dogs creeping along on their belly, and the bull um, keeping his horns as close to the ground as possible, because it was the aim of the dog to bite the bull's nose, um, because it was thought if you 
bit a bull's nose, it would it would sort of roar and, and in fright, which a valiant bull uh, you know deigns never to do. Um, so eventually, three of the little dogs would approach it, and you'd see the bull get its horns right under one of the mastiff dogs, and its aim was simply to flip the dog as high as it could go. So if we're in, if we imagine this is the kind of rickety timbered amphitheater, uh, it would be flipped up sort of higher than those arches up there. And uh, we have kind of some accounts to rely on. Samuel Pepys went there in 1666, which was an inauspicious year. And uh, he saw um, a dog flipped all the way up, and it landed in the boxes, right where you guys are sitting there. And then John Evelyn went the next decade saw a bear, sort of, rather a dog flipped all the way up and actually landed on a lady's shoulders. Um, so if you went back in time and managed to catch a flying dog, you were sure to get a round of applause. Um, eventually, uh, the, the bull would be killed, uh, or the dogs would be killed, and that would be that and they'd be carted off. And in would come a grizzly bear, which would be tied to exactly the same spot. And uh, it was a similar story here. Obviously, the dog tried to sink its teeth into the bear's pelt, uh, but the bear did everything in its power to kind of lacerate uh, the dog's throats. But unfortunately, he wasn't very successful at that because the, they used to break the bear's teeth to prolong the sport, um, which was kind of rather cruel. So the only option the bear really has is to suffocate the dogs and uh, when you're watching it from the galleries, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was a cuddle uh, until you'd see the lifeless body of the dog slumped to the ground, the bear shaking his head in victory, his eyes all smeared in slob and blood. So you'd be confronted with scenes something like this. Here we can see all the things we're just talking about. There's the bear giving the dog a cuddle, and uh, there is the bull which has been <laughs> set upon by the mastiff dogs. Um, so you're probably wondering, how on earth did this come to pass? Does this not seem a little bit incongruous? Uh, we're thinking about the year 1603. It's a city of increasing sophistication. It's a world of rough starches, of kind of women peering out of carriages with beautiful chalk-white faces and ornamental patches on their faces as well. Um, it's a place, of course, of uh, playhouses. And I think it says something about the nature of the age that uh, audiences were quite happy to go and watch a philosophically searching play like Hamlet one afternoon, and then the pandemonium at the bull and bear baiting arena the next. And uh, the two traditions are linked, and there's a reason why so many of Shakespeare's plays are so bloody and gory, is because it's informed by these expectations of violence that had been um, kind of brewed in the bull and bear baiting arenas. Um, bear baiting, it was genuinely popular. It only cost one pence to go in. Um, it was legitimized by the kings and the queens. Um, Queen Elizabeth loved bear baiting. She didn't bother to visit the globe, but she came to the bull and bear baiting arena several times. And um, she even had her own master of the bears. And one of the officers um, that he controlled, he got personal control of a dog press gang, um, which used to kind of scour the streets of London looking for anyone's kind of cute pet who would just be sort of forced into the bull and bear baiting ring. Um, this was an age, of course, that had no sense of animal rights. It would be 90 years before anyone bothered to inquire whether an animal had a soul or not. And and uh, as such, these were all seen as perfectly legitimate fodder for your entertainment. Uh, even Erasmus couldn't conjure up any words of disapproval. And the kind of adjectives people used to describe bull and bear baiting as very fine and beautiful. And the Privy Council itself said it was a, a, a beautiful and peaceful pastime fitted for a, a peace-loving and... Um, and, and solace-ridden um, people. Um, so it's a very different mentality, and you see that a lot in Shakespearean London. Um, if we're to take a little walk uh, east, um, we're gonna go to this thing here. Anyone know what 
what that is, that's the, I mean, it, well, I'll tell you, it's the great stone gate. Um, but what are these things here? Yeah, they're the severed heads of traitors. Um, and uh, that's what they used to do. They used to um, well, cut off people's heads and uh, put them on this gate here. And this is one of the first things that people would see as they entered the city. Um, it was uh, you know, a little reminder, if you like, what would happen if you were deemed a traitor to the crown. Um, so William Wallace of Braveheart fame, um, Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, Guy Fawkes, they all ended up as these kind of gruesome human lollipops that you can see here before you. And uh, you might think that people kind of acted with horror every time they saw them, that a kind of shiver would slither down their spine as they caught the eye, or rather eye socket, of one of these heads. But in fact, we have the, the, the accounts. It's not all this gory, don't worry. It gets, it gets less gory. Um, we have the account of Thomas Platter, who was a Swiss traveler. And uh, he said, actually, what you got was uh, noblemen would be turning up. And uh, they were very fond of the heads, and they pointed out their ancestor. And they said, I say, that was the Duke of Buckingham up there. He was my sort of great-great-grandfather. And, 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 and they loved the fact that their ancestors were of such high descent that they could even covet the crown. Um, uh, the, you might wonder how these kind of stayed there. They were all sautéed in pitch uh, to make them waterproof and parboiled. And they were looked after by the keeper of the heads, which was the weirdest job in London. Uh, he had to fend off the avian vultures. He lived up there with uh, the heads, you know, attending to their every need. Uh, and people did try and steal them all the time because it was um, rather you know, understandably believed in those days that if you wanted to be cured of cancer or poisoning, the best way to do it was to drink out of a dead man's skull. So people nicked them and tried to turn them into cups. Now, uh, there is actually a memorial uh, to these severed heads in London today, but I bet you've all walked past it hundreds of times and you, you haven't even stopped to notice because it's not your fault, you just don't know it's there. It's this thing. Anyone seen this thing? Outside uh, London Bridge Station, that is the Southwark Needle. It's the approximate point at which the heads were severed and, and where they were you know, caressed by that aforementioned keeper of the heads. So next time you walk across London Bridge, uh, hopefully that will spice it up for you. Okay, we're now going to, uh, go, to uh, go out of the Shakespearean city and so we're going to find another portal. Um, this is obviously a, a relic of the Roman wall and uh, this is by the Museum of London. It's in London Wall. And uh, in a sense, uh, I mean, it, it's quite substantial. It looks sort of palpable and real, but forlorn as well. It's kind of adrift in, a, in this world of high-rise, high-octane finance. And kind of in, in the middle of the night, when the traffic is reduced to a trickle on London Wall, um, this kind of evokes for me the mystery and the menace of the medieval city when it was hermetically sealed and dead to the world. Because in those days, you had a curfew. That's, that's all it was. That was the medieval city. It was this kind of nut in the middle. This is the ink blot, if you like, that will eventually blossom into the human awful wonder of God and cracking out of that shell and growing into the biggest city in the world by 1900. But it was a walled city and those gates shut uh, on the dot at nine o'clock each evening. Um, London also consisted of Westminster, which was over here, and you had all the beautiful bishops' palaces lining the river. And anyone know what was, what was that Charing Cross, where the National Gallery is today? What do they have then in medieval London? Oh, it was, of course, the Royal Hawk House, where all the king's hawks were brought to malt, um, because that was a kind of status symbol. You know, that was like having the, the very latest iPhone or something. You'd walk through church with a beautiful hawk or a gyrofalcon, or a, and, and it would watch people, and when it looked like it was about to attack someone, you would put the silk hood on it, and it would be hoodwinked. Um, okay, we were talking earlier about the sort of serendipitous connections uh, that have potentially arisen in some of these talks so far, and Patrick mentioned hermitages, right? by the seaside. And uh, I think where we should go next 
is uh, we should visit an anchor hold. Um, not quite the same thing as a hermitage, because um, they're staffed, but or, 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 this is where anchorites live. And this woman here is an anchorite. Now, you had anchor holds all over London in the Middle Ages, and uh, they were places where individuals, quite of their own volition, would go to be immured. So they would say, I will now spend the rest of my natural life in a tiny cell, uh, eight foot by six, and I'll be literally walled in and uh, I will never leave that cell until the day that I die. And even then, I'm not going to leave it because there was a, a handbook for 13th century anchorites called the Anchor Vis that says, uh, advises women like this, says every day you should um, ostensibly to stop your hands becoming too kind of supple um, and smooth, you should sort of dig up the, the earth from the grave in which you shall lie when you die. So there's evidence that people actually um, never left, even in death, and that the new anchorite coming in would simply live on top of the last one. Um, so it was a kind of a horrible thing for, 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 from our perspective, but the, these people were eerie presences um, in the kind of parish churches, in sort of Cheapside, in All Hallows, and in Southwark as well. Um, and they had one little window on to the altar, um, so when you were attending your services, you could hear the wails of the anchorite and the sort of rhapsodic ejaculation of them um, whilst you were at church, but you would never see them again. They would be in this tiny little cell. That's kind of what it looks from the outside. Um, so again, the fact that we have this shows that there was a very different mentality back in medieval London. Why on earth would people choose to live like that? Well, what they were trying to do was to sublimate all their emotional impulses and carnal urges into a perpetual contemplation of God, thereby achieving their own salvation and through prayers, the salvation of other people too. And these anchorites were revered as these kind of fortune tellers and these kind of um, spiritually pure people. So if you ever had a kind of spiritual problem or you just wanted to gossip, or indeed in a pre-banking era, if you just wanted a safety deposit box, that's where you would go. Um, because no one could go in, and uh, you know, the anchor right was kind of walled up. Um, in medieval London, this man had a huge influence. Um, this man struck fear into the very hearts of Londoners for over 400 years. Uh, anyone know who he is? I've written at the bottom, haven't I? Yeah. Um, he's, not he's not just the Bishop of London. He's, the pa he's your patron saint. He's the patron saint of London, and not just that, he was an incredibly sort of vengeful one as well. Um, he kind of, uh, if you forgot to go to his feast days, one man forgot to go and written down in a sort of collection of miracles. He said, I'm not gonna bother to go to your feast day, I'm gonna go and do some work instead. And he sort of tripped over um, the skull of a, that sort of happened to be in front of him and sort of bashed his head and died of concussion. Um, this man was not someone to mess with, but of course he was expunged from the popular consciousness after the Reformation and uh, all his shrines were smashed. And uh, there's only one kind of, he only has one legacy in the city today, and that is this street here. Bizarrely, there's a street named after him in in, in West London, and it's uh, very near Wormwood Scrubs Prison, and it's also home to East Acton Tube Station. So we're going to briefly talk about this, but we're not really because there's not time. This is, suffice to say, this is the porn hub of Victorian London, okay? And this is Gladstone. Uh, this is a statue of him in the Strand, and he's looking down, and look how unimpressed he looks. That's because he is staring down this place that was known as a place where sort of dirt and darkness meet and make mortal compact. It was called by the Telegraph as the, the most um, barbaric street and the most disgusting street in the civilized world. And uh, if you walk down here, you would find all sorts of literature and interactions going on, flagellation, brothels, and that kind of thing that would challenge our notion of the 
Victorians as a kind of prudish people. Um, today, it's been bulldozed away to make way for the Solus um, Aldwick development. Um, and the only thing that's left of that, you can see that sort of rather fetching crescent half moon in the corner above the guy with the flowers. And that's the only thing that's left. Uh, it's in the Museum of London today. Talking of which, if you were to land in the 18th century, you would see a sort of forest of shop signs like this. Um, jutting out from buildings at right angles from these kind of wrought iron brackets, squeaking and creaking in the wind and clamoring for the attention of passers-by. Um, the Caton Fiddle was one of the most common. Um, it's thought this was named after a Norman governor called Caton Le Fidel, whose name the English, it seems, never quite mastered how to pronounce. So just changed it to that. Uh, this is the Civic Cat, which is where you went to... What, would you, what did this mean you could buy inside if you saw a Civic Cat? Perfume, yeah, because it was kind of uh, excreted. Um, and uh, this was one of the strangest signs they had. Help me through this world. Um, we have the world's end. You used to see the world's end on the sort of liminal bit where the cities stopped being built up and melted into fields. But this also appeared as tavern signs, and no one really knows how that how that came to be, but it was uh, a common sight and quite a charming one, I think. Uh, this was, of course, uh, the sign of a coffee house, the Turk's Head, and just moving on to the final section now. And um, this was, if you like, the kind of 18th century equivalent of that pernicious Starbucks mermaid that we see dangling over so many uh, shops, uh, the city-wide. Uh, and um, not just the Starbucks mermaid, but the, uh, the Cafe Nero sign as well. And uh, we see you know, a good 300 or so of these all over London. And uh, this is our final portal. And this takes us straight back to the end of the Blitz, because this is on Tottenham Court Road. And it's a kind of a strange Cafe Nero. Ooh, I went up a bit there. It's kind of, it sits in a moat of open space, like a lone domino. And it's very rare to get open space like that in such a built-up part of town. But this was, in fact, the site of the final V2 to full on London uh, in 1945, um, on Palm Sunday. It blew up the Whitefield um, Tabernacle and everything around it uh, has just, they haven't rebuilt it. Um, and uh, the only sign of the kind of death and destruction of that day are the nine unflowering um, trees on the right there. Um, the V2s in total, of course, they, um, there were about sort of 500 of them which fell on London. Uh, they disemboweled entire streets without warning, sending kind of mountains of black halo into the air uh, and leaving parts of London looking like the surface of the moon. Um, and uh, this, as I say, was the final place for it to fall. Um, so having, having written this book, um, as you can see, um, one thing that sort of uh, comes through uh, sort of thinking about London today is back in 17th century, 18th century, or medieval London, just how seething with life, um, the kind of, with life that should have been, um, inner London was. Uh, the parts that today are the kind of West End, uh, places like sort of Knightsbridge and Soho and Mayfair and Marlborough, and the city itself, uh, all of which are parts which I think today are becoming hollowed out and are under threat. And as we have this kind of exodus to the suburbs, the actual inner core of London is becoming something of a shell. So by going kind of uh, Traveling back through the ages, uh, it makes us appreciate a bit more the kind of freedoms and serendipities of inner city life uh, at a time when those freedoms are in some ways under threat. Thank you very much.